0: Hello? Hello? Hello?
1: Hi, Alex.
0: This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the Global Politics Podcast, at the end of the end of history. What comes next? This is part two of the Uber Mention of Capital series, this one on liberalism and fascism. Before I say any more, welcome to all the new listeners who've joined us recently, and a particular thanks to those who've chucked us some change into our Patreon to say thank you. It would be great if you would consider contributing if you haven't done so already, just pay what you want. This will go towards making Bunga bigger and better. It's patreon.com slash bungacast. If you're not in a position to do so, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Facebook, or your podcatcher service, and tell your friends. Final thanks before we get started. We have new music and a new visual identity. We think they're great. Huge thanks to Johnny Mundy and Dewey at Ramune.io, respectively. Do check out their work. The links are in the show notes. And finally, finally, cheers for all the emails and the messages that we've received, giving us feedback and suggesting episode ideas. Keep them coming. In fact, it was a listener, Mustafa Gold, on Twitter, who put us onto the idea of discussing the ideas of Landa. so nice one. Uh, Right. Uber mention of capital. Last time, we discussed the cult of the entrepreneur and the idea that postmodern captains of industry like Jeff Bezos or Peter Thiel should be given free reign because they're the only agents that can take society forward. Part 2 is a more historical episode, looking at the links between economic liberalism and fascism. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, we're not crudely saying that liberals are actually fascists, but we are interested in exploring how important figures in the history of liberalism often had recourse to authoritarian means to defend capitalism. So let me just highlight one example raised by our guest today. Italian economist Vilfred Pareto saw elites in the early 20th century as wily but degenerate foxes who had let the masses run riot. To preserve the natural order of free competition, a lion was needed, a musso lion, if you get the pun, uh, or take Hitler's ideas, specifically his economic ideas, and his principle of achievement. If the economy was based on hierarchy and domination by capitalists, Why shouldn't politics reflect that too, he thought. So today we're joined by Ishai Landa, associate professor at the Open University of Israel and the author of several books. The Apprentice's Sorcerer, Liberal Tradition and Fascism is what we mostly discuss here, and his new book out is Fascism and the Masses, The Revolt Against the Last Humans, 1848-1945. I strongly urge you to check out his work, I'm personally a big fan. We're back with part three in a week to discuss how this world of monopoly capital and supposedly heroic capitalists might actually be laying the ground for socialism. Here now is Alpha Bunga Bunga with Ishailanda. Alright, hi everyone, I'm Alex Hochili, also here is George Hoare in London Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury, and Ben Fogel in New York. And we are very happy to welcome Ishai Landa, who you'll have heard about in the introduction just there. So we want to start talking about a contemporary tendency, which is to associate fascism with the other side. So traditionally, fascism is understood to be of the right, but there's various contemporary attempts to link it to the left. Probably the most egregious example is Jonah Goldberg's liberal fascism. Uh, we've also recently seen Madeleine Albright come out with a book, uh, which is more of a liberal attempt to conflate any sort of authoritarian leader with fascism. I think in, to the point that in her new book, she argues that North Korea is the only fascist regime in the world. So Ishai, as a starter, how has this been allowed to happen? Uh, and I guess as a consequence, what did, what did you set out to do in your work on fascism? Uh, yes, um, well,
1: the status of fascism is rather unique in my view among modern ideology because fascism is perhaps the only consensual taboo that remains in the political lexicon. So while almost all ideologies can find defenders, almost everybody disavows uh, fascism, you know, at least in polite polite society. But the precise nature of this, the taboo remains uh, very much unclear so much so that it seems that when different people attack fascism they are talking about completely different things and because uh, fascism is almost universally accepted as something profoundly evil you know people not only shun it but they also use it as a weapon people of different persuasions not only try to distance themselves from fascism they also try to put the blame as you say uh, on the other side on which is to say the the side that they most strongly disagree with. So there's a double movement involved of cleansing yourself and trying to soil uh, your opponents. The -hmm. right wing uh, pushes fascism to the left, uh, the left pushes it to the right, and the center blames uh, both left and right. So I think this is the basic predicament which makes defining and understanding fascism so difficult and so uh, contested. The stakes are, are extremely high. And uh, in my work, I intervene in this debate and I critically address several ideological strategies uh, which are very common and come uh, mostly from the political center, you know, the liberal mainstream. Um, These ideological strategies link uh, fascism with socialism. They associate it uh, with the masses and they present it as fundamentally anti-liberal. And what I do, I try to argue on the contrary that fascism was a right-wing movement, ferociously uh, opposed to socialism, that it was an anti-mass uh, movement um, and ideology, and in fact that it was, in some respect, crucially indebted to uh, liberalism. So
2: I think this is absolutely fascinating. This is sorry, hi George here. Um, yeah, because we've we've talked um, in previous episodes of the podcast about ideas of political space and i think anybody who follows politics on twitter will know that many classic liberals hold to this horseshoe theory where socialism and fascism are supposedly have more in common with each other than with liberalism but even people like steve bannon give this some some credence positing a future battle between socialist populism and national populism uh leaving glo- uh, liberal globalism behind so i think tying in with this idea of, of, of fascism as, as this taboo what what do you think explains some of this uh terminological confusion that we see today?
1: Um, Indeed, as I said, the liberal center tries to cleanse itself of fascism and in a way soil its opponents by killing two birds with one stone. So it argues that socialism and fascism were not really opposed, but somehow related in their extremity. Both supposed to have hated liberalism above all else and Mm-hmm. This shared hatred made them similar. So they were uh, somehow the frères' enemies, the brotherly enemies, is it, um, according to one definition. So this is the by now classical uh, Oshoo theory. And of course, this is a very convenient and uh, self exonerating narrative, but at the same time, that it's highly misleading. I think that uh, in historical reality, the true. Implacable enmity was between the right uh, and the left, between uh, fascism and different uh, variants of socialism. And liberalism actually occupied some middle ground. So it wasn't so much hated, but despised by both fascists and socialists. It was a, a kind of a lukewarm ideology, a no man's land.
0: I mean, one of the um, one of the virtues, one of the many virtues of uh, of your book, The Apprentice's Sorcerer, is precisely the fact that it straightens out this horseshoe that you that it restates the importance of the left right mm-hmm. spectrum and places the question of uh, socialism versus capitalism and. Um, Labor versus capital at the core of uh, of how we understand political space, uh, and I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about this metaphor of the Apprentice's sorcerer uh, that the that that is the title of the book and is a reference to to a poem by Goethe, the sorcerer's apprentice. So you flipped it around. This was made for listeners popularized in in Disney's Fantasia, whereby <laughs> uh, the the yeah. brooms. Come to have a life of their own because the apprentice of the sorcerer does some naughty stuff while the sorcerer is away and conjures them to life, and suddenly they become subjects rather than objects. So, could you talk us through that?
3: Wait wait a minute, wait a minute, Alex. Are you saying that you do not expect our listeners to know who Goethe is and that it needs to be simplified for them to the Disney level?
0: (laughs) I'm just adding extra color just in case.
1: Yeah, um, maybe if if, uh, I'm allowed, I will complete the i try to answer to the former question before I move on mm. to the apprentice's sorcerer and trying to explain that because I want to say something at the end uh, also on Bannon that was mentioned. Uh, would that be okay? Absolutely. Okay, so I think the terminological confusion that was referred to is also a reflection of the ambiguities of liberalism itself because liberalism uh, was not of one cloth and it contained mm. disparate and even hostile streams. So, depending on what they were perceiving, socialists and fascists were both highly suspicious of liberalism as much as they were also linked to some parts of the liberal tradition. Uh, Put very generally, socialists were related to the political dimension of liberalism, democracy, uh, popular uh, popular representation, etc. Whereas the fascists were defending economic liberalism, essentially capitalism, Mm. the sanctity of private property, social stratification, and so on. So both uh, socialism and fascism were partly liberal, but they also saw liberalism as a lesser enemy that was facilitating the advances of the main enemy or uh, a force that was too weak or hesitant to stop it, even colluding with the other side. So Steve Bannon, if we uh, talk a little about his position, actually seems to be uh, supporting the view that the ultimate enemies are socialism and fascism, and that liberalism is bound to be left behind because it is neither milk nor meat, as we say in Hebrew. I'm not sure there's the same saying in English. It's kind of a hybrid creature that cannot sustain itself. But actually, socialist populism, as he calls it, will preserve important features of political liberalism, whereas his own national uh, populism would preserve its economic side. So it's not really a horseshoe theory, it's more like a bullfight Mm -hmm. theory. And I think that Bannon, who can probably be uh, be seen as a neo-fascist of of sorts, here uh, continues the lines of the fascists themselves and thinkers leading up to fascism. Uh, And I give several examples of this in my book, uh, like Juan Donoso Cortés, the influential uh, 19th century Spanish reactionary, and later on, Karl uh, Schmidt.
3: Mm.
0: And I think one way of maybe unfolding this a bit further is to talk about when this important split in liberalism happened between political and economic liberalism, which I think uh, regular listeners will be familiar with because we discussed Domenico Losurdo's book on liberalism a little while back and mm-hmm. talked quite a bit about this. But it might be worth just restating what exactly is at stake there and historically what came about.
3: Um,
1: Yes, well, now I need to complete the the part on the Sorcerer's Apprentice, because we can't leave Disney (laughs) behind, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so just very shortly, uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is a very familiar story, of course, and also often used by scholars to uh, describe the unforeseen consequences of one's actions. So it's about a situation uh, which goes terribly out of hand. So reckless or inexperienced people, the apprentices, They haven't mastered the craft entirely. They overestimate their power and their knowledge. They play with forces that they can't control and which ultimately turn against them and overwhelm them. But at least in the Goethe and in Disney, luckily for them, there's a more powerful force, the sorcerer that comes to the rescue and restores order. And what I did in the book was to tweak Uh, with a parable just a little bit. I cast the liberal bourgeoisie as the apprentices who didn't know exactly what they were doing when they were creating the modern uh, political order. They rebelled against the aristocracy and created a system based on representation, which first, of course, played to their advantage. But they never reckoned with the fact that someday the system will turn against them when the working class will demand that liberal democracy... Uh, shall become a mass democracy. And when that happened, uh, the liberals needed to s- invoke a force, summon up a force that will make uh, make them ride the storm. So they created a dictator- dictatorial uh, sorcerer to rescue them. In the original story, the sorcerer precedes the apprentice. He's the legitimate mm-hmm. master that saves the day. In my version, the apprentice precedes the sorcerer. The sorcerer isn't there to begin with, uh, this will be fascism. And hence the move in the title from the sorcerer's apprentice to the apprentice's sorcerer. The
0: sorcerer's yeah. daddy who's called in to, <laughs> to clean up.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: No, I think it's a very evocative, um, very evocative metaphor, uh, which really brings to life what, the, in fact, the whole book. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Ben now because he actually had a point about the historiography and, and the debates that you're engaging in there.
1: Should yeah. I, I talk a little bit about the split, or uh, should be? Uh... Uh, I think I think
4: we can come back to the split, and we can sort of frame it in this question as well. Okay. Okay. Um. So uh, I guess I'm the only, I'm the other historian in uh, this podcast, and uh, one of the things that I really found quite interesting uh, when you were setting up your book, especially in the introduction, is when you uh, posit that essentially it has been an ideological turn in the historiography of fascism, in the sense that Uh, The urge to take ideology seriously, which was a sort of, for me at least, a a major theme of the 90s sort of cultural turn and turn to uh, sort of cultural history and sort of ideological uh, focus in uh, sort of wider debates meant that in the context of fascism, people uh, were spending a lot of time about trying to really understand and taking fascism very literally. But you argue this went too far, and this made several fundamental errors and in some respects, uh the turn away from understanding uh material contradictions or material causes of fascism uh, ends up you being in taking really contradictory uh, statements and thinkers uh, very literally. so can you expand on that and what exactly you're trying to do?
1: Yeah, sure. I think you know as you rightly point out, what characterized the work of historians and political scientists that focus on fascism in the last uh, 30 years maybe is indeed a move that can be described you know moving away from class from society to culture and ideology which means you know there is this common trove that trying to uh, take uh, fascists as much as possible at their word you know take them literally rather than this whole school of suspicion and trying to see them as just providing a smokescreen for the real uh, motivations, seeing fascisms uh, from the inside as they themselves and uh, saw themselves rather from than from some exterior uh, perspective. So this is the general move and I'll start by saying that I think it has some justification. You know, I don't think it's a totally move totally in the in the wrong direction firstly because I myself I'm basically a cultural historian and I'm, I'm engaging ideology, Ideologie critique, as I say in German. So I'm very interested in ideology. I'm not an economist or anything uh, like that. And moreover, I think that ideology is very important. You know, We cannot dismiss the role of ideas, of convictions in history. But as you say, there were many problems also in this kind of ideological turn. And the two main problems for me is that firstly, uh, ideology was read in a vacuum. It was assumed that ideology is independent of class or of social goals. And indeed, I would say even more that one almost get the feeling that this is the goal of this entire uh, cultural move to kind of put society uh, away, to Mm -hmm. uh, conceal social conflict. So what was meant or you know, presented as a way of enriching our analysis often proved very restrictive and produced a new um, reductionism, this time an ideological one, Uh, which leads to the second problem that uh, the reading of ideology produced by these people is often insufficient. In a sense, they assume what they need to prove, which is the distance of fascists from issues of class, their supposed indifference to economic concerns. And I think that When you look closely at fascist ideology itself, you see that class was actually very important, that economic issues were also very central. And the second issue is that the fact that what fascists told us, their ideology, their utterances were often very paradoxical. Fascists said many things. And moreover, there was a conscious sense of mendacity, of cynicism, or even lying, the notion of the only lie, which kind of predecessor of today's post-truths age mm-hmm. so they use words in a very cynical and manipulative way and therefore we need a methodology when approaching fascist texts that will allow us kind of to sift through what is can be treated as genuine and what is cynical and kind of machiavellian so this was um, i would say the purpose of my own intervention not to dismiss uh, the focus on ideology but to offer a, a more materialistic and suspicious approach to ideology. Which yeah,
4: I think that's yeah. very important for a, a number of reasons, um, especially when we consider, for instance, if we are in an age where uh, right-wing ideas and things which are close if to fascism, if not fascistic, are returning, a lot of the sort of liberal center or establishment or, res- or what they call the resistance here in the United States response is just to point out hypocrisy and contradictions, which doesn't really seem to be working. And in fact, uh, at least in some of my work uh, as well, I've uh, found or at least believe that uh, a lot of people on the right, because they have a very cynical view of politics, including people who are close to fascism, don't particularly care about being uh, contradicting themselves or anything like that, because it seems there's a wider goal and it's about getting power. And I think uh, on that note, I think we should also maybe with that in mind, we can return to uh, what we were talking about in terms of this uh, 1848 split between uh, sort of the political and the economic uh, post-1848 split we referenced earlier. And I think uh, with that in mind, I just want to suggest to link this all together that uh, when your goals are actually just to get sort of economic victories or economic changes, and you've separated that from, from uh, other things, it doesn't really matter if you contradict yourself politically because you have a different goal.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. I think this is uh, part of the post-truth problematic that we are experiencing today. Uh, and, and definitely this kind of putting success uh, above all else, which is economic as well as political. This is kind of the fetish of, you know, the kind of hyper-capitalist, uh, neoliberal society and culture that we uh, that we live today. Um, about the, the, the liberal split, if I can try to uh, explain it very briefly. Well, liberalism was originally uh, a unity of politics and economics. So it was the ideology that served the bourgeoisie against the monarchy. But liberals uh, never intended parliaments to be dominated by the masses and demands to be made against their own rule. These demands are essentially uh, economic in nature, progressive taxation, redistribution of property, uh, maybe even more radical measures. So they found themselves in a precarious situation, and they needed to decide what was more important. This happened especially after the 1848 revolutions, where for the first time in European history, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat really clashed with each other. So essentially they had to decide what was more important about the liberal legacy. Was it the political order, the normative aspect, or the economic foundation, capitalism? And some decided in favor of the political order, some uh, for the economy. And this I call the split between uh, political and economic liberalism. And political liberalism was then continued in such uh, guises as neoliberalism liberalism, social li- liberalism in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, which veered closer to socialism in its revisionist uh, uh, forms, whereas economic liberals tended rather to authoritarian um, political forms up to and including, uh, of course, uh, even uh, fascism. So this is basically, very shortly, the the liberal split.
0: And I think you put this very nicely in The Apprentice's Sorcerer, the way that you work through several supposedly liberal thinkers who seem to have, um, well, have been some continuities, I guess, with fascism. So you look at uh, Pareto or Spengler, for example, uh, both... Uh, the latter, especially of whom you note, is particularly consonant with neoliberalism. Um, so maybe you could talk us through maybe some of the more of the details of this uh, elitist, anti-democratic tending towards authoritarian thought or or face of liberalism, of economic liberalism.
1: Yes, I, I think that you know the crucial thing when we talk about economic liberalism was to defend property from arbitrary uh, taxation. And uh, if you go to the uh, seminal text of uh, John Locke, for him, the entire liberal uh, order rested on this uh, fending off of taxation. So liberals needed to make sure that politics be defined and confined in the first place so as to forbid and preclude any legitimacy of intervening in the economy against the owners of property. So politics was made Subservient to the interest of the of the of the rich, and if this was initially directed against the monarchy, later on it uh, um, obtained just as much against uh, mass democracy. Uh, and moreover, if politics happened to forget its place for Locke and other liberals, the social covenant became null and void, and the rich were entitled to use a violent means to protect themselves. And I refer to this in the book as a ticking time bomb that was installed at the heart of the liberal order and which finally exploded when dictators in alliance with the bourgeoisie terminated democracy. This happened with Bonapartism in the 19th century and then fascism and other far-right movements in the 20th century.
0: Right. And it seems that after the disaster of fascism, liberals then turn around and create certain myths about fascism, which, as you'd already alluded to, wrote themselves, wrote the liberals out of the story. Uh, so in The Apprentices source you identify four different liberal myths, and I think uh, it would be good to focus on one specifically, that of individualism versus collectivism, that fascism is collectivist and liberalism is individualist. And you try to poke holes in this idea, in this so-called liberal myth.
1: Uh, Right, right, because, well, individualism is, I think, perhaps the most important single trope that uh, supposedly distinguishes liberalism from fascism. Fascism is supposed to be anti-individualistic, a collectivist form of uh, politics attacking individualism. So to me, it was important in the book to uh, show that even here, even in the kind of holiest of holies uh, of liberalism, we see uh, an unexpected affinity. Because the view that fascism was simply uh, anti-individualistic is very simplistic and, you know, can be complicated uh, historically. And what I uh, argue in the book uh, is that we need to distinguish between essentially two kinds of individualism, two um, basic individualistic uh, conceptions. The first was horizontal, which means that Everybody's an individual. I am an individual as I'm talking to you. Everybody who's taking part in the conversation is individual. If you go out from the studio to the city, everyone is an individual in the country, in the world, and so on. So individualism is basically, you know, a human attribute. And everybody being equal in that basic sense, it doesn't mean that we, have, we are similar in all respects, but we are equal in, in being individuals. Politically, this Uh, entails um, a political order that is egalitarian as much as possible, essentially democracy, popular representation, and so on. And of course, this was an individualism that fascism uh, rejected uh, vehemently. But then again, this doesn't mean that they didn't embrace another form of individualism, which was a vertical one. And here the concept was radically different because This uh, concept, which we find already in liberal concepts in the 19th century and and in Nietzsche and many others, actually argue that individualism is not uh, a universal attribute of human beings, that actually most people are not individuals. They are just part of the amorphous uh, masses, part of the herd. They have no individuality of their own. And actually being an individual is a very uh, rare Uh, occurrence Mm -hmm. and it's kind of the reserve of special human beings the elite
0: some are more Uh, individual than
1: others absolutely like especially of course the genius great artists great politicians and so on it was the cult of the genius as a supreme individual and if we move to the 20th century we uh, find someone for example like charles uh, Maurras, the important uh, french a conservative that was a great influence over uh, European fascism that argued, can we say that every blade of grass is an individual? Which, of course, he would answer, uh, he would completely reject. So we have the individuals are very rare, and we need to defend them against democracy, against the rule of the leaders, and that's to a large extent it's what fascism believed itself to 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 uh, um, to put into being, sort of an then the notion of the great leader is not the denial of individualism, as is usually understood. It's not the individuals succumbing to this great leader. Rather, the great leader is the defender of individualism, and he is the great individual himself, finally protruding, finally kind of rising above the mediocrity, the universal mediocrity of democracy. So there are two individualistic concepts. One of them is actually to a large extent, compatible with liberal uh, notions that uh, fascism took on and incorporated very much into its own ideology and uh, praxis.
0: I thought that was very interesting how you, I guess, um, show how individualism is a much more ambiguous figure than is normally thought of. Um, and I, it, what, hearing you talk about this rem, uh, reminded me of a, of a contemporary sort of alt-right meme, which is that of the NPC. The, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but of the the non-playable character, which is sort of a gray face with a kind of drawn-on nose and mouth, uh, which is just another way of saying sheeple or whatever, you know. These these masses who don't really count. They're just there to make up the numbers, effectively.
1: Right, and the quantity, people against not the sheeple,
0: yeah. Exactly, Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Which is a very common kind of far-right uh, trope. Indeed. And unfortunately,
0: it's something that one occasionally sees in certain left-wing milieus, which I think is something that we'd like to come on to talk about more towards the end of this. Um, But right now, I'm going to head over to Phil, who had a different
3: question. Hi, Ishay. I just wanted to push you a bit on the point about liberalism. When you talk about liberalism needing to um, concoct a response to the challenge of socialism in the political sphere... I suppose, isn't there a danger of portraying it ahistorically or monolithically and that we're talking about liberal? I mean, it's not obviously the same liberals, say, who um, led revolutions in the 18th century. Um, it's not the same liberals who um, attempted, say, to uh, subvert the Holy Alliance in the first part of the 19th century. So is there a danger of when you talk about liberalism in this way, is there a danger of it being ahistoric and talking about all liberals as if they're the same?
1: Um, yes, I think there is a danger, but uh, I try to uh, avert it, and I believe I am successful at that. Precisely by looking at the evolution of liberalism. For example, this whole notion of the liberal split is a historical notion. So I'm trying to talk about a certain evolution, streams that developed within liberalism. And in my book, I make it very, very clear that when I attack uh, economic liberalism, or when I analyze, more precisely, the contribution of economic liberalism to fascism, this isn't meant as a sweeping dismissal of uh, liberalism as a historical uh, uh, ideology or movement. And actually, you can see my own contribution as defense of another kind of liberalism that is still active today, political liberalism. And I do think that between socialism and radicalism and political liberalism, there's much common ground. So I, the historical element is definitely part of a uh, vital part of uh, what I'm trying to highlight. So It's not a kind of a monolithic uh, picture, either uh, with regards to the past or uh, relating to uh, liberalism as it, we find it today.
3: I suppose to bring it more um to bring it more towards the present then, could you tell us a bit about what happens after the war? So if we've talked about um the development of fascism in the first half of the twentieth century, the cult of this particular cult of vertical individualism centered around the great leader, like you mentioned, the need to defend um certain kinds of property rights against a socialist challenge, what happens to all of these ideas? What happens to fascism after the Second World War?
1: Um well, I think that for several decades um, after the defeat of fascism and when fascism became this taboo that was mentioned at the beginning, uh, liberalism was forced to compromise with mass democracy and the result was the welfare state. And of course, the Soviet Union, the existence of a of an alternative or seeming alternative to capitalism also played a significant part. But this compromise uh, was never... Uh, or mostly done uh, implicitly. With very few exceptions, it involved no real acknowledgement of the shortcomings of classical liberalism and the need to move beyond it. And on the contrary, what emerged was the myth of liberal democracy. It was a kind of very common notion still today, which uh, pretends that uh, liberalism and democracy are inherently harmonious almost, and even that they cannot exist uh, without each other. So the historical hostility of liberalism Tabor democracy was basically forgotten, uh, and the liberal contribution to fascism uh, basically disappeared. But of course, uh, the fundamental tension between economic liberalism and mass democracy uh, didn't really disappear, and it was to reemerge uh, with a vengeance in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s with the rise of neoliberalism, uh, that again insisted on, you know, protecting the economic. Uh, domain, that it shall remain secluded uh, from political intervention. So I think this would be a sketch of uh, post-war liberalism. And today, maybe we are moving into uh, the next phase where authoritarianism, open authoritarianism is raising its uh, ugly head again.
0: So I wanted to ask a question which was going to lead on to this notion. Uh, one of the ways that you characterize the change in liberalism is by looking at the evolution of classic liberal attitudes to the law. So in the early radical phase of liberalism, uh, liberals used the law against the old order in its progressive phase to take down the old aristocracy uh, and proclaim the rights of man and so on. Then law and order come to be reconciled in a more conservative phase of what you call legal positivism. Mm-hmm. And then finally, liberals start to be put against the wall a little bit and find themselves in a position where they have to defend bourgeois order against the liberal law, which is uh, which you characterize as a reactionary phase. I think that's a quite a neat way of looking at that, of, at the way that liberal attitudes to law versus order actually shift and actually f- completely flip around. And I was wondering whether we might not see that today, uh, that neoliberalism now increasingly finds itself in a position of defending its order against the prescriptions of what should be its law.
1: Uh, Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, the scheme in the book was historical. I wasn't trying to make predictions. But uh, the way you apply to post-war developments, I think, is is very compelling. And uh, there's definitely a tendency to attack law and order you know, subjugate the courts. We see this in, in the USA. It's extremely strong in Israel today. Uh, the Kind of the open cynicism of people like Trump, like Netanyahu, and the rest of these, um, you know, uh, right-wing politicians, where basically you get this notion that rules and regulations aren't important. Norms don't matter, and they can't be applied anyway. So what matters are results, kind of delivering goods. Um, and I think... I would go even farther than that and say that it seems true to me even in a broader sense. So if you connect it with laws and rules of reasoning even, so even rationality seems to be under attack and this is the kind of post-truth atmosphere, the proliferation of fake news, of myths, conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. In a sense, there is a climate of don't bother us with facts, don't confuse us with facts. Uh, Irrationality is even celebrated today as a superior form uh, of doing things. And I think it's very remini- reminiscent of uh, processes that happened in the period that led up to fascism, uh, the kind of destruction of reason that Lukacs analyzed in so, such a brilliant way. You see, again, uh, these fa- fatalistic leaps of fate, of choosing one's community and identifying with, with it at all costs, that reminds me of Heidegger's uh, Schicksalsgemeinschaft, community of destiny. And I think it's relevant in today's rise of identity politics, uh, which are perceived as a more genuine, um, precisely because they are mythical, they're emotional, Mm -hmm. rather than kind of abstract, empty, universal human rights. So irrationality is even presented as more heroic, more tragic, more emotionally satisfying than the banal truths of mass society, and all these rationality it's very important to uh, no it doesn't really challenge uh, capitalism it celebrates its inequities and inequalities it makes rhetorical gestures to the people but uh, but it doesn't really uh, offer real solutions to to the problems that exist the widening gulf of inequality housing crisis decline in the standard of living etc so what it does is actually to uh, address the blame to those below to the poor, the refugees, ethnic minorities, not to those above. To the extent that liberal elites are attacked today, it's only because they allegedly side with the weak and protect them against their own kind. No structural solution to uh, economic problems is envisaged. The alternative is just a tribalistic war against the most uh, vulnerable. And this affords some kind of sadistic pleasure uh, in not being at the very bottom of the food chain. One is invited to feel uh, pride of belonging to a superior uh, tribe. And those who insist on pointing out the inhumanities of the systems are mocked as bleeding hearts. It's kind of a, if I may say so, uh, a fuck your feelings uh, motto. Uh,
4: I think that's very interesting because uh, I see something uh, connected to this, but a little different. So I'm from South Africa and uh, we have a very particular liberal tradition in South Africa which I don't think is that different to, say, uh, liberal traditions in Latin America, which is, in a sense, liberal tradition on the periphery in uh, societies which are more openly defined by inequality, by uh, claiming uh, the connections to a more recent history of slavery or apartheid or racial segregation. Mm-hmm. Do we have a slightly different relation uh, that, um, with liberalism there? Is uh, liberalism perhaps uh, more overtly and explicitly uh, authoritarian or connected to uh, certain ideas of hierarchy in the sense. For instance, I can think of two things. And uh, then, uh, for instance, like liberalism in terms of the South African liberal opposition to apartheid uh, really manifested uh, its differentiation from uh, apartheid. wasn't that it was necessarily uh, more democratic in many respects, but its idea was qualified franchise. In other words, we don't need uh, universal rights. We need people who have the ability to uh, earn their rights. In other words, you have to be Mm -hmm. more like us. So it's basically instead of embracing uh, a complete critique, it's uh, acceptance of the idea that because we are closer to civilization, We deserve more rights. And then secondly, I think in terms of that mocking of the weak you think uh, you speak of, I see that a lot in people who call themselves liberals in uh, places like South Africa and Brazil, in that they openly despise the poor uh, for not being civilized enough, for being weak. And in many respects, even if they claim fidelity to uh, liberal ideas, it's in fact them who uh, chastise the um, people for being bleeding hearts and believing in uh, human rights even though they claim they're liberals. And do you think that there's something particular about this liberalism on the periphery? Uh,
1: well, it's very interesting. I can't say too much about that because I don't know the, the situation in South Africa and uh, South African history. But uh, at any rate, it seems to kind of tap into and continue uh, traditions that are, very, uh, that are the center of liberalism, always this uh, attempt to create hierarchies, to distinguish between those who have merit you know the and those who don't, those who can be full citizens, and those who don't, with the most ingenious uh, excuses and pre- pretexts. So I think what you describe about South Africa resonates with that with that tradition. I mean, we find it even as early as the theories of the of Abessies during the French Revolution, where he supposedly was an egalitarian figure. He was speaking in the name of the third state, but then very quickly it turned out that he uh, made this distinction between Tiny minority of the further state that would be the active citizens, and the rest would be the passive citizens. So I think it's a, you know, kind of a chronic uh, problem of granting universal c- citizenship, that is part of the liberal tradition and reflects the uh, structural inequalities of capitalist society.
0: Well, I think this um, this idea of the political liberals opening the door to the masses and then uh, the economic liberals having to come in and close the door or have someone close the door yeah. for them is something that uh, we've witnessed very recently in, in Brazil very um, in very stark forms with the election of Bolsonaro, uh, which brings us on to the topic of anti-capitalism. If we're talking about fascism, we must talk about anti-fascism. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Phil who wanted to ask a question specifically on this.
3: Hi Shay, this is Phil. So just to um, make this, I guess, clarify this idea about how um, how thinking about fascism has changed today. I think it was understood for a long time in the post-war order that fascism was associated with capitalism, its association with hierarchy, with explicit defence of inequality the defense of property um, and the connections and obvious connections between fascist governments and regimes and the powerful Mm -hmm. industries and banks. And it seems to me maybe that's flipped now because, or at least flipped in a very particular way. So under this idea now that um, any kind of uh, a neoliberal or an ordinary mainstream, even a left liberal perhaps, would see that any kind of mass politics is fascistic, any kind of state intervention any kind of state intervention in the economy is um, potentially total, potentially dangerous. Um, could you take us a, talk a little bit perhaps about how that flip over happened? Uh,
1: yes, I think that, you know, liberal anti-fascism did, uh, there is this uh, change that taken place, you know, um, and much of liberal anti-fascism and Albright that was mentioned earlier is a prime example, I would say, is indeed it's purely uh, conservative and just clings to the status quo. And it doesn't see any reason to change the present system or doesn't believe any change is possible beyond minor tweaking uh, here and there. So any change is considered to be for the worse, if it's radical. And people who insist on the necessity for change are either dangerous and foolish uh, utopians if they come from the left or they are just denigrated as uh, the proverbial uh, basket of deplorables,
4: mm-hmm.
1: right, if they come from the right. And I think this reflects the the bankruptcy of the mainstream left, the fact that the left has abandoned uh, an alternative vision of politics and society and become more committed to defending the order created by neoliberalism. So mass politics, indeed, as you say, is seen as something that needs to be contained as far as possible, neutralized as far as possible. And this uh, indeed uh, draws justification from the notion that fascism meant a state intervention in the economy, whereas the reality uh, was actually the opposite. On behalf of the capitalist class, fascism banned uh, popular political interference in economic met- matters. So fascism is all about letting uh, the economy rule our lives and spinning myth myths around this fact to kind of camouflage it. And to that extent, state intervention and mass politics are indeed uh, antidotes, antidotes to fascism. But I would add a caveat because we're living in an age of globalizations uh, and our limits to national frameworks, limits imposed on state rule. We see this in the European Union run by unelected bureaucrats. You know, the free flow of capital to countries which offer good environment for business and so on so i think there is a challenge on the part of radicalism to reinvent uh, politics if i may draw on a book that was written by the sociologist ulrich beck uh, which is a very interesting one and to think globally you know renew this kind of internationalist commitment of the left and uh, i think that bernie sanders whatever you think about him and whatever his limitations he uh, recently proposed to form an international progressive front to counter the new authoritarian uh, axis, and I think this renewed um, left-wing internationalism would be definitely a step in the right direction. So, just
2: to just to I guess pick up on um, one of these points around some of the myths in the economy, and this the maybe also your answer might touch on this side of the principle of achievement that is is central to some um understandings of fascism. the do you think we're witnessing um something similar or or something maybe slightly unique today around what the the great leader means? I, I guess we're trying to tie this a little bit to to another episode of ours where we talk about the entrepreneur because the entrepreneur, mm-hmm. Um, this this character seems to grow, grow ever stronger and increasingly enters into politics in a number of of different ways, particularly in the form of Silicon Valley ideology and maybe Macron in this way or Peter Thiel's support for Trump, um, as well as his dreams of creating his own island. So, what do you think is the the kind of the significance of the the great leader today being being partly in the kind of I guess in the economic sphere in this this character of the entrepreneur?
1: Um. Yes, I, I agree with this uh, with this account. I think it's, it seems to me to be a part of this move to unleash uh, economic liberalism. Once political liberalism and social democratic ideas lose their credibility, they don't seem that feasible anymore. And the apparent need is for saviors, which will be basically heroes of the market, realistic heroes. They will be doers. They will not be uh, contained by norms and inhibitions, but they will offer strength and resolve. I think that Bolsonaro would be the ultimate example of this kind of military-industrial fusion. You mm. know, the strong man as a would-be savior. And I could add, of course, to this list uh, someone like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is an admirer of Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayelet Chaked, uh, Israel's uh, justice uh, minister, is also an admirer of Rand. So, yeah, I think there is this sense that um Kind of business and military allure as the only uh, possible solution. Once the structural change is ruled out, that's what we are left with.
0: So I guess to to move on from that and and look at how we might challenge this uh, th- this new configuration of uh, of an increasingly authoritarian neoliberalism, which uses as its uh, as the sort of key inspirational figure as the the entrepreneur. Um, how that might be challenged and you've already made reference to the fact that perhaps the left the contemporary mainstream left is not equipped to deal with that and a main issue with that is is the sort of anti-mass notions that uh, that certain mm-hmm. that parts of the left has have absorbed certainly as of the 1960s countercultural revolt um positioning yeah. itself as alternative and outsiders as a, and as opposed to the mainstream which is treated as normies. Uh, one of the consequences of the left's countercultural stance has been to allow the right to claim the mantle of the common people and particularly this new populist right which uh, which seems to is able to combine neoliberal forms of economic regime with uh with increasing sort of nationalist appeals
1: yeah yeah i think yeah it's part of the left buying into this notion of uh, fascism is as, uh, associated with the masses even if you know, in this version, it's the masses as kind of manipulated. We are not the driving force, maybe, but they are still uh, they enable fascism because they are, in a sense, they let themselves be duped by fascism. And in reality, as I pointed out, you know, fascism was to me a strikingly uh, anti-mass uh, movement. Interwar fascism was the culmination on the uh, of an effort on the part of the upper class elites and the middle class allies. To subdue mass politics with all its broader uh, social, cultural, economic implications. And one of the, uh, the key ambitions of fascism was to eliminate the mass, in fact, and to move from mass to X, whereby X is kind of a superior collective entity that is, uh, sorry, presented as superior to the mass, whether we are talking about the folk, a nation, a race, a community, and so on. So against massification, which was associat- associated with democratization, with greater equality, with uh, the emancipation of women and working class power and so on, uh, fascist, uh, you know, endorsed restoration of hierarchies and creation of new uh, hierarchical entities. And the problem with the left that it's, I think, has not been sufficiently critical of this common uh, association of fascism with the masses. And therefore, it hasn't been able to defend mass society sufficiently. I think that we can see mass society uh, alongside uh, people like Norbert Elias, for example, that spokes about the civilizing process, actually is a very high stage of historical uh, evolution. And the left is insufficiently aware of this. Uh, It's true that. The masses on the left were seen more positively than on the right. You see the example, for example, of uh, uh, someone like Paolo Valera in Italy in the early 20th century. This is something that I discuss in my uh, most recent book, uh, "The Revolt Against um, uh, the Masses," that he founded a journal called La Folla, the Crowd, the Masses, and he saw them in extremely positive uh, terms. There were other examples. the masses as a journal uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But alongside this more positive view, there is also a tendency on the left to oppose the mass and wish to replace the mass with an X of its own, which is, of course, class. And in my book, I argue that this is mistaken. Uh, I developed this, uh, of course, at some length, but put very, very briefly, the ideal of the left ultimately is not class. It's the class-less, society it's a class that has transcended it's a society that has transcended class division so if you think this through this implies a return to the notion of mass society albeit by way of a hegelian circle of sublation i don't think i need to explain to any of you what aufhebung uh, means right so uh, actually (laughs) need to explain to our
0: listeners what the bunga bunga bit is about though (laughs) yeah yeah Uh,
1: actually fascism (laughs) espoused class as a rigid kind of insurmountable historical horizon and it went even farther even class was too uh, fluid too volatile so many fascists wanted to restore castes even and for socialism class struggle is not the goal it's the means to abolish classes Mm -hmm. so class shouldn't be uh, fetishized and i think there's a lot to gain by occupying the space that liberalism had turned into a taboo, liberalism and also conservatism and, of course, fascism, that is the space of mass society. But left-wing elitism, which has become uh, prevalent, as you point out, obstructs this option. You know, There is a widespread disdain of mass culture, um, debunking of progress, I think, is also central to that move, which in the end strangely confirms the conservative diagnosis, you know, the, the Nothing is more central to the conservative diagnosis of modernity as uh, presenting modernity as decadent, as a site of decline. And mm. you find a lot of people on the left, for example, Zizek and Badiou, resonating with this kind of critique. They essentially agree with Heidegger, for example. You know, they, There are many similarities between their own analysis, but ultimately they say Heidegger wasn't radical enough. That was the problem. So we can go along with Heidegger... Basically, until the the last decisive turn, then he goes right. He takes the the wrong turn. We we go left and we do the right thing. But I think this is obviously a highly problematic uh, procedure. And uh, I think that as a result of this elitistic uh, posture, the left is often perceived as aloof and patronizing. And as you say, this opens up the space for the right to masquerade as friends of the working class. Just a very recent example uh, Ted Cruz, in his, uh, you know, in his speech celebrating his uh, uh, victory in Texas, he presented his own, is the the Democrats as people who come with a lot of money with Hollywood banking them, uh, outsiders trying to take over Texas. And that he said, "Fortunately, the hardworking people of Texas, you know, defended our state and so on." <laughs> uh, so he yeah. could present himself as a friend of the hardworking people of Texas, which in a sense is true because I think he really. Uh, wants to make them uh, work uh, even harder
0: <laughs> that's excellent I think that might be a great place to end this on um, and I think uh, I, I would like to uh, to kind of plus one that last bit about the fact that the left should occupy the space left behind by a, a lukewarm liberalism which is has its own aversions to the masses that was part two of the Uber Mention of Capital series with Ishailanda. I would recommend you again to check out Ishailanda's books. Please consider donating to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash bungacast. And please rate and review us. See you next time to discuss the People's Republic of Walmart. Catch you later. Bye-bye.